Standard Road We'll listen to your sister When she came home from school Cause she was two years older And she had boys in her room And listen outside, I heard her Alright Well that was alright For a while But soon I wanted more I wanted to see it as well as here And so I I hid inside her wardrobe And she came home round four And she was with some kid called David And from the garage of the road I listened outside, I heard her That is Babies by Pulp and the sad news coming today that Steve Mackey, the bass player in that Britpop band, has died at the age of 56. His wife, Katie Grand, wrote on Instagram that the musician had died following three months in hospital, paying tribute to him, saying, quote, Steve was the most talented man I knew, an exceptional musician, producer, photographer and filmmaker. Steve Mackey joined Pulp back in 1989. He played on albums including his and hers, Different Class, and This Is Hardcore. The band's biggest hit was Common People, uh, but we played Babies because of that great bass line, which is a real driving force in the track. And for regular listeners to the panel, I can only apologise that I know it's Friday and it's not a power ballad, but I hope that nonetheless um, we have managed to play you some music which has... Brought a little smile to your face, despite that sad news coming today about Steve Mackey. Uh, let's go to the panellists. Julie Woods, was Pulp a feature of your youth in any way? I think I must be too old, Susie. <laughs> I, 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 hadn't, I haven't heard of them. Sorry, Steve, but rest in peace and thank you for your contribution to the world of music. Raj? Um, I remember them. I wasn't a big fan. Uh, but I remember, of course, common people and uh, uh, very shocked to hear about this death. Um, yeah, it's pretty sad. I mean, 56 is a, a pretty mm-hmm. young age. But uh, yes, I'm sure with Wallace back next week, the power ballad on Friday will return. I can I can only hope that the power ballad will return anyway. It's now 21 minutes to five on the panel on RNZ National. We've got Raj Chakraborty with us and also Julie Woods is with us today. Now we're going to talk about banking. Um, $2,000 a year. Now that is the amount that every New Zealander is contributing to profits for the banks, according to anti-monopoly campaigner Tex Edwards. The founder of Two Degrees has published a 21-point investigation plan for a Commerce Commission market study. Now that has not been ordered, but he is hoping that banks will follow supermarkets and building materials which have faced official scrutiny. And Tex Edwards joins us now on the panel. Kia ora. How do you get to this figure of $2,000 per person? It's just the total published profits of the banks divided by the population base. Um, It's a very simple number. And um, I think on this occasion, with regard to market studies, the numbers really speak for themselves. Um, And it might make for an interesting public policy debate. Talk us through 
this investigation plan that you've put together, what are some examples perhaps of things that you're thinking should be looked at? Well, actually, it was only after our um, adventure into supermarkets and building materials that we got asked by several several, several people, what did we think? What, what was a sensible another study to look at? Let's remember that industry transformation takes decades, not, not months. And essentially, analyse the profitability of the New Zealand banks versus international banks. Remember profits. Banks must make profits. It's healthy for the country that we have a profitable banking system. The problem here is excessive profits and not enough competition so consumers aren't able to negotiate themselves into a better place with their banking margins. So it's just a look at what's international best practice in banking competition versus what's happening in New Zealand. And what are some of the ways that people are contributing to these bigger profits the banks are making? Essentially, it's bank margin, it's margin in mortgages, it's a lack of real activity between the big four to capture market share. A lot of people would say that, again, when ANZ took over national banks several years back, that that was a strategic mistake because it, it extracted, it moved us from a five-player market to a four-player market. Um, and banks charge consumers a number of ways. They charge them fees, they charge them account fees, they ch- charge them transaction fees, and they charge them bank margins on mortgages. So it's things like um, the markup, effectively, on mortgages from you know, what the reserve bank rate is to the, the rate that you actually pay your bank. It's that kind of thing where, where these extra dollars are, are leaking out of, of our pockets. Yes. Remember that banks are intensely complicated and in any study, banks would make things more complicated because it's, banks have a vested interest to protect their shareholders and protect their profitability so they would make it sound profit- more, more complex than it is. But remember, banks receive deposits from consumers, from institutions, from companies, from governments, and then they only lend those monies to, to people at a margin. Just hang in there for us, Tex. It's a bit of a scratchy line, but I think you're in the midst of travelling. So just hang in there and we'll go to our panel. Julie, if I can talk to you about this one. Uh, would you be supportive of a study of um, the Minister saying that the Commerce Commission should take a look at the bank profits? Absolutely. I think this is one of those things that we've talked about for years, just like supermarkets. It's like, come on, why is this study not being done? And um yeah, you know, I, th- I think it just uh, we need to get the Minister of Banky Things, Duncan Webb, I think it is, yes, onto um, onto commissioning or requesting this market study because I think it needs to be done for New Zealanders to feel better um, that something is being looked into and investigated about these high level of profits. And Raj, I mean, in the cost of living crisis that we're in. It's pretty galling to see these bank profits, isn't it? Yeah, and um, there's a phrase of Texas that uh, really stood out for me. And um, he says, and I quote, quoting back at him, you've had intergenerational grooming of Kiwi consumers that they are not big enough for competition, unquote. And, you know, that word grooming really leapt out at me. So I wanted to ask Tex, um, do you think as a country – We are often gaslighted into believing that because we are a relatively small and faraway market, 
we must always put up with higher costs for everything across the board. Is that inevitable? Thank you, Raj. That your comment's been the highlight of the day, other than seeing my six-year-old son who's creating noise in the background. I apologise, but um, absolutely right, and that's why the, the lobbyist provision in the market study pointers that I I published this week is so important because it's absolutely strategic that there's no anti-lobbyist legislation in New Zealand, and continually, New Zealanders are big enough to queue but we're not smart enough to organise the queue. And New Zealanders keep thinking it's back in the day and we've only got 2 million people. We haven't. We've got five. And because yeah. we've got five million mm. people, we can, we can continually benchmark ourselves against Ireland, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Norway. And there are all these healthy OECD comparables. And it was on that basis of the banking profitability differential and the, the consumer's actual end cost that we based our hypothesis, we based our, our, our submission in terms of our draft terms of reference. But thank you for emphasising that because too often it's the banks, it's the electricity companies, it's the jolly supermarkets, it's the building materials companies that say, oh, praise the Lord, it would be lovely if we had more competition, but we've only got five million people. Well, mm. that isn't correct. They need to answer to the OECD benchmarks. And what's fabulously interesting in this public policy debate about the banks is that Standard & Poor's, Moody's and Fitch Ratings, these very large global organisations which rate banks yeah. they agree with Monopoly Watch. They, they agree that there's excessive profitability. That the, the numbers that, that they publish express this profitability that, that's extreme. And so no need to listen to Tex Edwards or um, uh, listen to Standard Poor's, Moody's and Fitch on this matter. If we could listen to you just for a moment longer, though, Tex, on the on the slightly scratchy, dodgy line, um, where's Kiwi Bank in all of this? Because obviously the market's still dominated by those big Aussie banks. No, thank you for that. In the terms of reference that we suggested, and we weren't being disrespectful of the Commerce Commission, we were just suggesting this is our two cents. We said, let's have a deeper look at Kiwi Bank because it hasn't created the consumer impact that people were hoping for. And the exact words we used, is it not the case that Kiwi Bank has attracted all the customers that, that the other banks didn't want? In competition, there's a very important principle, and we catalogued it extensively in the supermarket debate, and it's called Pyrrhic competition or pretend competition versus like-for-like competition, like-for-like price-based competition. And what's happened with Kiwi Bank is it's a choice but it's not a price competitor. And so Monopoly Watch stated, in its terms of reference, that a very deep, detailed study of why Kiwi Bank hasn't created price outcomes for Kiwi consumers, that that needs, in mortgage spreads, uh, needs to be studied. Thank you very much for your time on the panel today. Tex Edwards there with us. Uh, it's now 13 minutes to five. Um, I might come to you first on this next one, Raj. Are you a fan of hummus? Yeah, I am. Um, I, and I have, I know, the, carry on with the story, but I have skin in this particular game. Oh, okay, right. Well, we'll come back to that shortly. Julie, is, is hummus something that you've got in your fridge? Um. Yes, Susie, it is. I love it as a uh, salad dressing for pasta. That's my favourite way of having hummus or on baked Ooh. potato. 
That sounds good. Let us know what how you have your hummus, 2101. But let's talk about this further because you might want to go and check what is in your fridge because some of the most popular hummus brands have got an extra special ingredient in there called salmonella. Now, just hold on to your stomachs for this one. It says, I vomited through my legs, quote, was one person's experience after eating about a quarter of a tub of Lisa's original hummus. And they're not the only Kiwis reporting sickness as a result of the hazardous hummus that is out there. Multiple products containing tahini have been recalled. Um, Let's talk about this now on the panel with Professor of Food Safety and Microbiology at Massey University, Steve Flint. Kia ora, Steve. Kia ora, how are you? I'm well, thank you, because uh, I've not had any hummus that's yeah. been bought from anywhere. But um, how does... Oh, I've had salmonella in the past, though. You don't want it. Um, how does salmonella com- contamination like this happen? Well, it's not common. Um, but, I mean, salmonella is around everywhere, and so there are a variety of different potential routes into the product. Uh, with a product like um, hummus, I mean, it's made with chickpeas, uh, which are very you know, dry sort of product normally, um, and of course tahini, which is made with um, 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 can't remember the name. Sesame seeds. Oh, sesame seeds. That's correct. Yes. Um, the thing is with salmonella, it's uh, an organism that survives in very dry conditions. So the raw ingredients, the sesame seeds and the chickpeas, can be contaminated with this organism. Um, if they've been, you know, poorly um, sourced, I guess, or prepared in the first place, um, you know, salmonella is shed in the feces of animals and so on, and um, you know, can if, if those animals or it could be rats or mice get into contact with, um, you know, the, the dried product, then it can certainly be contaminated. And also, in some in- environments, this organism just exists. Um, and you know can contaminate um, you know products that are mm. exposed to it. So the big problem with salmonella is it is very resistant to dry conditions, whereas many other pathogens are not. So it will survive for quite a period of time. And once those products are used to manufacture a product such as hummus, um, then you can end up with a contamination issue. Mm. How soon after eating something that has salmonella in it, you know something that is contaminated, um, before you actually start getting sick? Well, it depends on a number of things with all these food poisoning things. It depends on the um, sensitivity of the individual, depends on the numbers of salmonella in the product. Uh, but normally you would expect a result, <laughs> if you like, within about um, a few hours after consumption. So maybe six hours, I think, is reasonably standard for this sort of thing. But it does vary quite a bit. So pretty quickly, though, nonetheless, um, yeah. it seems like this contamination's perhaps gone a bit under the radar for a wee while. Do you know how that would happen? Well, I don't know. I mean, um, because I haven't actually followed the... Well, all I've seen is what's in the press, and I haven't really followed this in detail. Um, But when issues like this happen, I'm not saying this is the case for this particular product, uh, but I know we had issues with other um, product contaminations in recent years. Um, And this is just not a New Zealand thing, but it's an international thing. Often... It takes a while before the source of contamination can be identified. It takes a while to trace it to the actual product source. But mm. unfortunately, in some cases, um, companies are, are, you know, they want to make damn sure that they're right before they actually release anything. So, sure. you know, if you've got a test positive, you'd want to retest it to make damn sure it is positive mm. uh, now, before you start raising the alarm. As I understand it, the affected batches, um, so people know the brands, it's greater. Yeah. 
Lisa's, uh, Prep Kitchen, Turkish Kitchen and Seasons Gourmet brand. There are also some other uh, My Food Bag brands of miso dressing, baba ganoush, crema and tahini yogurt that could also be impacted by all of this. And the batches have a use-by date up to and including April the 15th. So it's quite a long way out, this one. The best thing then that people should do, um, take it back to where they bought it or to chuck it out. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I mean, um, if you take it back to where you bought it, um, you know, most um, uh, retailers would uh, give you a replacement product, and, and that would be fine or refund. Um, yeah, I mean, clearly there is a problem out there, and it's been identified, and MPI will be dealing with it. Mm. So there's no real point in going to MPI because they know about it. But for your own, you know, personal reimbursement, if you like, you should take it back to the retailer. Yeah. yeah. Now, Raj, you said you had skin in the game on this. I'm intrigued. Well, uh, what happened was that uh, when the producer, Sam, forwarded the story, I had literally, and it came a bit later than the other stories, I had literally just got up from um, having a snack of hummus and crackers with one of the brands you just named. Oh, no. Um, And so there's like... I had this kind of gulp moment and um, until, you know, the professor's quite reassuring words that um, it would have manifested itself because I've been dipping into, happily dipping into this tub of hummus over the past few days uh, because I hadn't come across this story. So there was a part of me that's been braced right through the show ever since I saw the story to excuse myself and run, you know, but I'm feeling a bit more. How many hours in are you? Well, as I said, I've been dipping into it over the past few days. So I'm a bit more reassured now that um, something would have happened if this particular tub was contaminated. Yes. Um, oh. So, uh, so, but it was a real gulp moment when I was like, don't, uh, don't say that, you know. <laughs> oh, no. So. And Julie, I guess, um, will you be digging through your fridge to make sure and having a look at the best before dates and, and seeing whether you've got one of the potentially contaminated... Uh, tubs of this in your fridge well as a as a totally blind person Susie the the best before dates are inaccessible to me so it's a danger for a blind person but um, I was wanting to ask the professor can you smell salmonella no (laughs) it's it's a silent like most of these food poisoning organisms um, they're there and you can't really smell them at all no It's pretty tricky, isn't it? What so what? It what sort of situation um, are you in then, Julie, in terms of checking for something like this? I would ask my husband and constantly do what the expiry date is on on a product. Mm. Well, good advice. Thank you very much, there, Professor Steve Flint from Massey University, uh, talking there about that hummus. Uh, certainly worth having a check if you're able to uh, as to whether you've got one of those brands affected in that best before date up to and including April 15th of this year. Now, it is five to five. Um, What do you do when the wedding goes on until the early hours, but many of the hotel staff have to get the last ferry at 10 o'clock in the evening? A Northland Hotel has found an innovative solution to exactly this problem. Obviously, you buy your own boat. Now, many staff at the Duke of Marlborough in Russell live in Pahia or in Haruru across the water in Bay of Islands, and the boat will be used to transport staff and customers outside the regular ferry hours between Russell and Pahia. We've got uh, Ricky Kinnaird, a co-owner of the Duke of Marlborough, on the panel with us now. Kia ora. Hello, Susie. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, tell me how you got to this point where you bought a boat. 
or two? Oh, hey, we, to be fair, we're, we're not boat owners, although my co-owner would like to be called the Admiral now after a couple of days of owning. <laughs> um, but we, um, over the last 12 years, it's, it's really, really hard to get staff from general and accommodation as a barrier, especially in Russell and uh, Kwadaki because of the prices. And we've been looking at it for a while, and the answer, part of the answer is connectivity to places where you can afford. And the water is our highway, state highway one, and a couple of boats came up for auction, and um, price that we couldn't say no to, and we, we hopped into it. So how hard has it been for you? I mean, we hear about how hard it is to get hospital workers anyway, but when you've got this situation of the last boat going at 10 and you've got late, later events going on, um, how hard is it to get staff to work these later shifts? Oh, well, practically you can't um, unless you have a boat. And um, what, what happens is that we've partnered with some uh, taxi water taxi operators who have helped, but they're too busy these days. Um, so what it does is put a lot of pressure on the Russell staff, which is probably 20% of the overall overall staffing model. And it's just too hard when you've got heaps and heaps of weddings and, and fun to be had. So we need an answer like this. So no one's going to be able to get out of late shift now, are they? Well, yeah. And the staff actually, like it's a fun environment. We look after, you know, weddings are great. Yeah good people having fun celebrating a wonderful milestone and, and our staff love it and they do really good but um, if you can't get home you can't get home so, mm. so this solves that problem. Will you be able to use the craft for getting supplies in as well? Yeah there's our theories are good people and we're all related up here in some way or another but the, the extreme ends of the day they just can't serve um, but we've got other things that we can do so reduce freight costs. Um, the last leg from sort of Pi here to Russell through the car ferry is very expensive. Mm. So they're like, what's that? But also, you know, we've got a big restaurant that serves local produce and wine mm. and fleet back on a boat and a bit of a sunset trip. We can leverage off that model and extend it a bit as well. Quick word to you, Julie, on this one. A good idea? Yes. Can I come for a ride? <laughs> Ricky, will you be taking punters as well as staff? Yeah, yeah. To be fair, we, we hadn't really appreciated um, mm. the amount of love we've had from high here people saying, hey, next hour we'd stay and have another wine. So it's, it's good. So we're taking you doing anything. Oh, look, that sounds like a great one. Thank you very much for joining us. Ricky Kinnaird there, co-owner of the Duke of Marlborough on the panel. We've also been speaking with Raj Chakraborty, novelist, short story writer, and also Julie Woods has been in with us, ambassador for Blind Low Vision New Zealand. I'm Susie Ferguson. Have a cracking weekend.